We uh, <clears throat> had a good friend for many years, uh, Pastor Steve Fernandez, pastored in Vallejo, California. He ended up uh, getting a, a brain tumor and, and died, but Steve was all over the place when he would preach, okay? And um, we're having dinner one night, and my wife says, Steve, you are my favorite ADHD preacher. And um, brother, I think if she met you, you 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 might have to be a close second. <laughs> hey, a vest. <laughs> oh, well, it's just it's been just a delight to be uh, to be with you here in the great state of Idaho, and as we come to our last. A session tonight, before I point you to the text, I want to just say that, so this afternoon after the, uh, the Edwards study on religious affections, I put together a compilation of, uh, so like the easy to read version of religious affections, and then some other resources with the website at the Yale, and then, uh, so if you were here yesterday or today for Edwards or just are interested, uh, JT graciously made some copies and they're just uh, right here. So we'll probably just do an altar call and then those that want them can just, uh, I'm teasing. All right. We're talking about revival and ordinary means of grace. And so to direct our thought, I'd like you to turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll start reading at verse 16, this familiar text. This is the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God, or more literally, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, as we uh, come to a close in uh, time together, we pray that you would draw near to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take the God-breathed Scripture and make it alive to us. We pray that he would quicken our hearts and our minds. We pray that not only would we be instructed from your word, but we also pray, Father, that we would be encouraged and strengthened by your word. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So tonight uh, we're going to look at revival and preaching. So last night we did revival and prayer. Tonight we're going to do revival and preaching. Now some of this may actually sound like it's only for pastors, but I want to uh, tell you from the get-go that I have a deep conviction, and that is that the people of God, the people in the pew, need to understand preaching, all right? They need to understand what goes on Lord's Day by Lord's Day right here. Bible opened, the old Scottish divines used to call the pulpit the sacred desk, right? So what is it that happens when we open up our Bibles and preach? Why why do we open our Bibles and preach? Why don't we actually go down to the community center and get uh, the local actors from Jerome, Idaho to come and do moving skits for you? Um, Why don't we do uh, just little film clips and then make some pointed uh, application? Or why don't we watch Andy Griffith and take the moral lessons from Andy Griffith? By the way, there was a church in our area about 20 years ago that did an Andy Griffith Bible study. Okay. Okay. Why don't we do stuff like that, right? Why do we come and actually listen to some guy stand up behind a pulpit, open his Bible, and then preach? And so tonight, what we're going to do is real simple. We're going to look at five reasons why we must preach the Word, okay? Five reasons why we must preach the Word. And when Paul says, in season or out of season, I take that to mean during times of great fruitfulness or barren times, right? So, so these, these reasons are in season and out of season. They're not just for revival times. This is week in, week out. So five reasons why we must preach the word. And then I'm going to talk about the preaching that has been most used by God throughout the history of the church for reformation and revival, and then I'll tell you what those two elements are when we get there, all right? So reason number one why we must preach the word, first of all, preaching is the biblically mandated method of communicating God's word. We see it right here in the text that we just read, 2 Timothy 4, to preach the word, Okay? Now, preach the word. The word preach is, is actually a very specific kind of word. It is to herald the word. It is to proclaim the word. And so, the apostles' mandate to Timothy, and thus really to the church, is that the way that God communicates to his people, does he do it in a variety of ways? The answer is yes, but the primary method by which God communicates his word to his people is through the proclamation, explanation, and application of his word. All right? So, number two. Why should we preach? Preaching puts the triune God in all of his glory on display like nothing else. So we live in a, in a beautiful area. We, um, you can walk out on my back porch and you can see the, the majestic Sierra Nevada mountains. And in fact, just a little south to us, uh, there is what we call Job's Peak. And Job's Peak is absolutely stunning. It's, it's, 
It's snow-capped all year round, and you can walk out, you can look at those Sierra Nevada mountains, or you can go up to South Lake Tahoe and see one of the most, just one of the most beautiful sights you could ever imagine, and your heart, of course, would be struck, and you would want to sing, um, uh, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, right? You, you, it would just, it would just, the beauty would just, the majesty would just draw it out of you, right? And so there's something that actually puts God on display more and better and more clearly. And it's what happens when his word is opened to his people in the power of the Spirit. And so... You say, well, where in the world would you get that kind of idea? Well, from the Bible. And so if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn. We're going to look at just a couple of texts. We're not going to belabor this point. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And verse 9. This, of course, is right in the, the, the midst of this magnificent messianic prophecy. And verse 9 says, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. There is a sense in which biblical preaching empowered by the Holy Spirit puts God on display before the eyes of and ears of God's people so that the, the ear becomes an eye. God is put on display in his glory, in his redeeming power, in his sovereignty. You turn over just a, a few chapters to Isaiah chapter 52. And you read this. How lovely, 52.7, sorry. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And so what's happening in the proclamation and explanation and application of God's holy word is that God himself is being put on display in a way that surpasses his display even in the natural created world. Okay? But there's more. It's not just preaching puts God on display. It's, it's preaching puts Christ on display. So you might remember... The Apostle Paul says to uh, the Galatians, he says, he says this, this is Galatians 3 and verse 1, he says, you idiot Galatians, all right, now that's actually a more accurate rendering than just you foolish Galatians, right, you idiot Galatians, before whose eyes... Jesus Christ was publicly placarded as crucified. Now, here's, here's the amazing thing. 
is that if you know the southern Galatian region, which is in all likelihood the recipient of Paul's letter, you will begin to realize that, first of all, it is overwhelmingly predominantly Gentile. You'll also realize that there is very little chance that anybody in Galatia would have even been in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. So the question is, when was Jesus Christ publicly placarded, that is put on display, before their very eyes as crucified? And the answer is simple. It is when Paul went to Galatia and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the way that Paul describes the preaching. Jesus Christ was publicly set before your very eyes as crucified. There is a sense in which the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, puts the triune God on display in a way that that supersedes and surpasses anything that we could imagine in this world. Stop and think for a minute about this. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. When did you hear the voice of the good shepherd? Is is Paul talking about, or is Jesus talking about um, that you're going to like mystically hear his voice? I heard voices. It must have been Jesus. No. When do you hear the voice of the good shepherd saying, follow me? You heard that voice through the proclamation of the word of God. Okay? So, the, the reformers... In the second Helvetic confession, actually in their confessional document, make a statement that is shocking to a lot of us. And it said this, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. In other words, when the Bible is preached and it's preached accurately, and when it's preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, God is not only being put on display, he is speaking to his people. Luther has this magnificent statement when he says, what is that I hear? It sounds like the voice of a man, talking about the preacher, but it's not the voice of a man that I hear, it is the voice of the Savior. So why preach? First of all, we're mandated. This is how God actually communicates to his people. Second, we should preach because preaching should put God on display in his glory like nothing else. Third reason is this. Preaching is the primary God-ordained means of demonstrating his sovereign power in bringing sinners to salvation. Now, God can save sinners in all different kinds of ways. I was converted by reading the Bible, okay? Some of you may have been converted by somebody giving you a gospel tract. Some of you may have been converted by a faithful uh, mother, a faithful father, a faithful Sunday school teacher giving you the gospel. So the word of God comes to us in all different kinds of, of venues. But here's the important thing. Biblically, the primary means by which God calls his elect out of the world unto himself is through the preaching of the word 
of God. And so, Romans chapter 10, this is again, it's a famous passage. The apostle says in 1013, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? Wonderful promise. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul begins a series of questions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now what's interesting is he says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not about whom they have not heard, but whom they have not heard. And how will they hear what? Without a preacher. And how will they preach unless they're sent, just as it is written? Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And then verse 17. So then, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so here's here's the most amazing thing, is that... In the act of preaching that's empowered by the Spirit, that's faithful to the Bible, what happens is not only does God put himself on display through the proclamation of the Word, but he is also pleased to work through the preaching of the Word to draw people unto himself. Notice this very language. How are they supposed to believe in him whom they have not heard, how are they going to hear him? They're going to hear through a preacher. And then, so, faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And so what ends up happening is as the word is proclaimed, the spirit of God is at work in the word of God. By the way, word and spirit always go together. You can't separate the spirit from the word. The word is the spirit's primary instrument that he chooses to use in the salvation of sinners. And so Peter could say it like this. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, which is the living and abiding word of God. And so that word goes forth, and what happens? God actually, as it were, opens up eyes, opens up ears, opens up hearts. And you, you can see this truth in other places. I wish we had time. We'd dive into 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, which is really just a stunning passage. But um, for time's sake, let me just read to you a couple of statements. The first is by Sidney Gray Donis. And he says, God uses contemporary preaching to bring his salvation to people today, to build his church, to bring in his kingdom. In short, contemporary biblical preaching is nothing less than a redemptive event. So you have to understand, preaching is a redemptive event. So what we think about preaching, we think about it like this. We think about preaching as basically instruction or basically teaching, right? So what I'm going to say is that there is, there's an overlap between preaching and teaching, and you can see this just in the way the words are used, but you, what you would have to say is this, is that all preaching 
includes teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. Okay? And so, that act of preaching is not simply the dissemination of information. The act of preaching in the power of the Spirit actually is, uh, brings about an encounter between us and the living God in a way that changes us, that impacts us. And so when Great Donner says biblical preaching is a redemptive event, we have to stop thinking about preaching as simply an academic exercise or a classroom exercise and start thinking about it in terms of it is in the act of preaching that God comes and meets his people. Cotton Mather, you ever heard of Cotton Mather? Cotton Mather says this, the great design of the Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. The great design of the Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. So we, we must preach Because preaching is the primary God-ordained means of demonstrating his sovereign power in the salvation of sinners. So, when we first started uh, uh, Grace Community Church in Minden, it was um, March 6, 1944. 1944. Wow, I'm really old. 1994. Stuff like, yeah. (laughs) I don't look bad for being like almost 100. Um, so it's terrible how that starts to happen, right? You, you hit 50 and all of a sudden it just all just, and it just goes downhill from there, I'm told. So 1994, and I, was 20, I was 26 years old, okay? 26 years old. And we had a men's prayer group that met on Friday mornings that still meets to this day. And we started praying for a guy named Doug, Doug was married to one of the ladies that was starting to come to the church. The the lady, Krista, worked for one of our elders who had a furniture store. His name was Andrew. And Andrew, every Friday, faithfully said, we need to pray for Doug. I'm inviting him to go fishing this Friday. I'm going to talk to him about church. So then next week would come along and we'd say, how'd it go with Doug? And Andrew would say, well, Doug says, well, I could figure out a better way to waste an hour on a Sunday morning rather than coming to church. Okay? You ever met someone like that? Okay? Now, Doug was Bill Harris' entertainment manager for 30 years. Okay? Bill Harris, a faint, you, you know the name Bill Harris? Harris Casinos. Okay? So, Doug hired guys like Frank Sinatra to come and perform at Harris. Okay, or Willie Nelson. I'd have gone to listen to Willie, but not Frank. Anyway, so <clears throat> Doug is this old, crusty guy. He's he's early sixties, but he he's he's older than he is. You know what I mean? Lived a hard life, and so he starts um, just badgering Andrew. I don't want to waste my time. So we keep praying. That's all we do. We just kept praying, right? Because God's stronger than Doug, right? So. So one morning, we were meeting at a middle school. One morning, I'm standing there, and this old guy comes shuffling up. And I thought, my goodness, it's Doug. 
Doug is at church. All of a sudden, there's, just, there's probably just about 70 of us, and there's this little buzz. Doug is here. Doug is here. Doug is here. And so I start preaching, and I'm preaching my guts out because, man, what do I want to see? I want to see Doug saved, and Doug's sitting there. All right. Next Sunday, he comes in. I said, good morning, Doug. What's good about it? I said, Jesus is alive. He goes, eh. Goes and sits down, folds his arms, glares at me during the whole sermon. So I'm 26, and I'm getting a little irritated with Doug. <laughs> and so I'll never forget one, one Sunday, he'd been coming for maybe about a month, and he just looked so grumpy and so upset, and just like it was a root canal for him to be there, and he'd sit there with his arms folded, and he'd give me this squint, and then he would, I'd say something, and he would just then squint the other way, and so one day, I got so frustrated with, with Doug giving me the stink eye while I was preaching, i took my coat off and I threw it on the ground. I was not very self-controlled in those days. I took the coat off, threw it on the ground. I said, you know what? Some of you are sitting here and you look like you've been weaned on dill pickle juice. (laughs) Got that off my chest, went back to the text. The next Sunday, Doug comes walking in. Hey, Doug, how are you? I had my pickle juice this morning, preacher. (laughs) Okay. So Doug is getting under my skin. And so I say, we're going to have a baptism class. So if you want to uh, sign up, let me know. And I get a call from Doug. What time is the baptism class? And I'm thinking, you shouldn't come to a baptism class, you old, crusty, unregenerate. Oh, this will be a good chance for me to tell him, I'm not going to baptize you. You're lost. So I tell him, I said, nine o'clock, my house, Doug. So we spend a couple hours going through the scriptures about baptism, and Doug's just sitting there. Everybody else is taking notes and writing stuff down, and Doug's just sitting there, and he's got this scowl on his face, and I'm thinking to myself, why are you even here? So then at the end, I passed out little notebooks to everybody, and I said, what I want you to do is just in, in just summary fashion, write out your testimony. So I hand Doug the paper and I, the pad, and I always remember this. I hand it to him, and I thought to myself, you'll have a blank page because you don't have a testimony. And about four minutes later, Doug says, all right, I'm done. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. And he hands it to me, and I look at it, and God humbled this proud 26-year-old boy because I read this I still have this note to this day I've lived a very sinful life and my only hope for salvation is in the blood of Jesus and I believe that I'm trusting him and I plan on living whatever years I have left for him I felt terrible and happy all at the same time, right? Terrible, like what a rotten person I am. And then I'm rejoicing. And so here's Doug, and we baptize him in the Carson River in December. Okay, yeah. 
if God gives him a heart attack and takes him straight to glory, I thought that's probably the best thing. So anyway, so Carson River, December, Doug shows up. He's got a velour sweatsuit on from the 1970s. It was absolutely hilarious. The river's flowing pretty good, so much so that we got guys down about 25 yards from us with ropes, okay? So we go into the river, and it's freezing. I'm down there. Doug comes in. His uh, velour sweatsuit blows up. He looks like the Michelin man. And, um, and I baptized Doug that day, and he was a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus till the day he died. And I had the privilege of being with him the day he died. He'd moved down to Vegas because he couldn't stand the cold anymore, came up for a conference we were having, was having lunch with his secretary, former secretary and his wife. He has a stroke. I go to see him. He's unresponsive. His wife tells me he hasn't responded in, since he's been here, and I'm standing there, and I said, Doug! You want me to read scripture to you? And he opened his eyes and he turned his head to me and he nodded his head and never woke up again. And he entered into glory. Okay. So I learned a lot of lessons. One, you can't judge the outside. You can't judge what's going on on the inside just because somebody looked like they were weaned on dill pickle juice. All right? Right? So that means that there's hope for some of you. Um, no. <laughs> it was a continual reminder to me, all these years later, all these years later, it is a continual reminder to me of the power of God's word despite the human instrument. It is the power of the word of God to open up blind eyes. Doug ended up becoming a deacon in our church. And I could count on him. He was as faithful as could be. So we preach the word because it's the God-ordained means of demonstrating the sovereign power of bringing sinners to salvation. Number four, preaching is the primary God-ordained means of edifying his church and causing the saints to persevere. All right. So there's a lot of texts that we could that we could think about, but the apostle says in Colossians that we proclaim him teaching and admonishing every man with wisdom so that we may present every man complete. In Christ, right? So, so the preaching of the word is not just simply the idea of this is how sinners get saved. The preaching of the word is also designed to help the saints grow in their faith and persevere. And so Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, what the interesting thing is, we hear that and we go, I, I need to long for my Bible. And that's true. But here's the thing. In 125, Peter says, and this is the word which was preached to you. Long for that pure spiritual milk which is preached to you and by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And so the word of God comes and, and it builds up the saints. The word of God does, the word of God, and, and you learn this quickly, right? The word of God does 
a thousand different things that you could never plan on in any given service. You can't actually harness the power of the sovereign spirit in the way that he decides to use the word. And so, is it important that preachers be, uh, that they, they be well prepared? And the answer is yes. That they know where they're going in the text? The answer is yes. Is it important that they actually come in all studied up and prayed up? And the answer is yes. But here's the thing, is that sometimes the word comes and afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted all at the same time. There are times that the word comes and reproves us, rebukes us, exhorts us, consoles us, comforts us. The word of God does all of those things and so many other things and all for the sake of building us up in our most holy faith so that we persevere all the way to the end. Number five. Preaching has been, why preach? Preaching has been the primary means by which God brought reformation and revival to his church. When you think back over the the history of the Christian church, the moves of God have always been in connection to some degree or another. That Yes, there's been prayer revivals and so forth, but, but reformation and revival has been most closely associated with preaching the word. So, there's a priest in Zurich in the late 1510s, around 1517, 1518, 1519, named Ulrich Zwingli. And he's doing something in Zurich that is absolutely unheard of. He's standing up and Lord's Day by Lord's Day, he's preaching expositional sermons consecutively through the book of Matthew. Unheard of. Luther will end up becoming known, yes, theologian, yes, reformer, but he will become known as a preacher, and he's the preacher of Wittenberg, and he's preaching to the people. A generation, less than a generation later, a couple decades later, John Calvin will arise, and, and, and God will actually force him into Geneva. Calvin had no desire to go to Geneva, but he goes to Geneva, and he starts preaching the book of Romans, verse by verse by verse. He's there for three years. They kick him out. Okay, They kick him out. And they're actually flirting with going back to Catholicism. Once the city council decides we can't do this, they invite Calvin back. So can you imagine, you've been kicked out, told you're not wanted, now they bring you back. And so Calvin stands up the very next Sunday that he's back and he says this, take your Bibles and turn to where we left off in Romans. Just preaching the word, just preaching the word, preaching the word. And this should not surprise us. Why? So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the decadent periods and eras of the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. What is, what is it that always heralds the dawn of a new reformation or revival? It is renewed preaching. So think about, think about revivals in the scriptures. Think about Jehoshaphat. Think about Hezekiah. Think about Joash. 
all of those, all of those moves, all those reforms, what we could actually legitimately call revival, are connected with priests going out and heralding the word, with prophets heralding the word. Think about Ezra and Nehemiah and the revival that takes place with the returnees. Days of small things, but guess what? God used the preaching of the word of God, by the way, to men, women, and children. To bring about reformation. Think about the acts of the apostles. We saw last night. The word of God is preached. It's heralded over and over. The reformation. The first great awakening. How does it come about? By preaching. The second great awakening. The good stuff that happens in the second great awakening. Takes place through the preaching ministries. Of Azahel Nettleton or Edward Griffin. In other words. It is actually the the preaching of the word of God that God is is pleased to use to reform and revive his church. And so as you look back, periods of reformation and revival are always associated with the explanation and application of the word of God. So those are five reasons why we must preach. And when God calls a preacher, that preacher has something shut up in his bones. Jeremiah says, was your word not shut up in my bones like fire? When a person's called to preach, it's something that they cannot, they cannot extricate themselves from it. They echo Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.16. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. So people sometimes will say to me something like this. So if you weren't a preacher, what would you be? And so for fun, I just tell them, I, I probably would have become a sniper. Now... <clears throat> <laughs> I think that sits better in Idaho than like New Jersey, but you know. Um, but here's the reality I can't imagine doing anything else, right? I can't imagine doing anything else. And so there's a sense in which when you have a pastor. Who preaches the word of God to you. He is a gift. From the living God. New covenant promise. Jeremiah 3.15. I will give them shepherds. After my heart. Who will feed them. On wisdom. And knowledge. So why preach? It's mandated. Not an option. Why preach? It puts the triune God on display. Why preach? It's the way that God saves sinners. Why preach? It's the way God builds up our faith and helps us to persevere. Why preach? Because through that ordinary means of taking up our Bibles week by week, 
God is often pleased. God's always doing something, by the way, in the ministry of the word. But God is sometimes pleased to bring reformation and revival through the very ordinary means of preaching the word of God. So what kind of preaching does God use? Um, I'm going to say two things. There's probably more. Well, I know there's more. But two things. The preaching used by God has been, one, expositional, and two, experiential. Expositional and experiential. So what do I mean by expositional? So, by the way, not everything that goes under the name exposition is exposition. Okay. By the way, rambling through a chapter, giving a word of explanation here and telling a story about when you used to ride your Harley there and just rambling through a text. That's not, that's not exposition. Okay? That's rambling commentary. Exposition is to actually take a text and you take a text and you proclaim it by explaining it and then applying it. Okay? It's that simple. Exposition. Now, now, by the way, that could be a verse. It could be a paragraph. It could be an entire psalm, right? So the, 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 the length of text is not the issue. The issue is, is there explanation of the text and then application of the text made as the text is being proclaimed, Right, so so preaching, um, preaching is not sharing. Okay, um, Jay Adams, who would always say things in sort of an outlandish way, he says, "Don't ever stand up and say." And if you say this, I'm sorry, but I used to say it all the time. I'm going to share what's on my heart. Okay, good, good, because it's really terrible, right? Jay Adams would say, why would you want to share what's on that old stinky, rotten thing? (laughs) All right? No, preaching, there's an element of authority in it, right? Okay, We're, we're we're not having dialogue, we're not having discussion, we're not having small group, we're not having affinity groups. We, we're at, what are we doing? We're actually authoritatively saying, this is what the Bible says. I'm explaining it. And now, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to apply it. And so Bible exposition is, is, should be not the exclusive diet, but let's say the primary diet. Okay? But, so what I mean by that is it's not a sin to preach a topical sermon. But what is not good for God's people is to have only a diet of topical sermons. Right? So in other words, the, prim- the primary thing on the menu is this. Exposition. Okay? That may be working through a section like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. It may be an entire book. Okay? Um, I preached uh, 191 sermons going through the book of Hebrews. Okay? Okay? I probably could have done 291. I was moving pretty quick. <laughs> All right. So what is it? Take a book, take a section, preach it, right? Now, this is not the time for us to go to an, into a defense 
for consecutive exposition, but let's just say this. When we faithfully expound the scriptures consecutively, what we are doing is we are preaching the word as God gave it. You work, God gave us books. He didn't give us disconnected verses like pearls on a string. He gave us books. So consecutive exposition is being faithful to the way that God's revealed himself in the word. And so what that means is that we end up having a thoroughly saturated biblical feeding. Okay? And in other words, an exposition is, is filled with scripture. And I want to say that this needs to be desperately recovered today. And by filled with scripture, I don't mean, I don't mean taking your Bible and then turning to 45 different cross references. Okay? So, saturated with scripture is not turning your sermon into the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. Okay? By biblically saturated, I mean actually drilling down into the text. So that the, so that the text shape, it gives the content of the sermon, but it also shapes the sermon. All right? Does that make sense to you? Okay, so the second thing is, is that expositional preaching will contain the following elements. First of all, Bible exposition will be Christ-centered. Okay, it'll be Christ-centered. That is, it will be a gospel feeding. Now, I don't mean that you artificially open your Bible and you have a text where, where Jesus isn't mentioned and you're going to make sure one way or another you preach the entirety of the incarnation, the sufferings of Christ, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that as you preach through expositionally, what is the goal of Scripture? The goal of Scripture is to continually point us to Christ and to point us to Christ in 10,000 different ways. Okay? There, are, there are a multitude of ways to preach Christ wherever you're at. Now, if you're in the Gospels, pretty easy, right? If you're in the Epistles, typically pretty easy. But you, the idea of exposition is that it needs to be Christ-centered because that's the goal of the Scriptures, to show us Christ. It needs to be a doctrinal feeding. So gospel feeding, but then also doctrinal feeding. This is where, this is, and, and I don't mean that we turn every sermon into a systematic theology lecture, but what I am saying is that there should be doctrine infused in the sermon so that the, the church gets her doctrine from the scriptures, right? And so if you're in a, if you're in a passage of scripture, uh, let's say you're preaching 2 Timothy and you got 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. What are you gonna do? You're gonna preach on the doctrine of inspiration. You're gonna, you're gonna speak doctrinally about what scripture is. If you, are, um, if you are in other places, you're going to be, in a sense, and again, not necessarily full-blown, full theology lectures, but you're going to be showing people why they believe what they believe because where it comes from. Okay? Most Christians don't even know what they believe. Most Christians can go to church one week and think that they 
think that you can be lost as a Christian and then go back the next week and then think, no, you can be saved. And I mean, just go back and forth like a ping pong ball in a windstorm, right? Doctrinal preaching roots people in the truth of God. So it's Christ-centered, gospel-feeding, it's doctrinal feeding, but it also has to be applicational feeding or applicatory feeding. What's interesting is that when Paul says, preach the word to Timothy, he then says this, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Do you know what reprove, rebuke, exhort is? All of those are application words. And so, so to preach in an applicational way is to actually take the scriptures, hopefully empowered, given wisdom from God and the ability by the spirit to, to make good application, but it is to bring the word of God to the heart of the listener so that they see how it fits or collides with their life. And so John Angel James, who was an uh, old time preacher during Spurgeon's day, he says, Though a careful analysis of the text should form the basis of almost all our sermons, there must be something more than mere exegesis, mere, mere grammatical analysis, however clear, correct, and instructive. Okay? So you got lots of guys today, and they're really good on exegesis. They're really good on giving the, the, the details of the text. But then James says this, We have to do not only with a dark intellect that needs to be informed, but with a hard heart that needs to be impressed and a torpid conscience that needs to be awakened. We need to make our hearers feel that in the great business of religion, there is much to be done as well as much to be known. And so J.I. Packer makes this comment, on preaching in a famous article that he wrote on what is preaching he says preaching is essentially teaching plus application invitation direction summons where the plus is lacking that is where application is lacking something less than preaching is occurring okay so what kind of preaching should we be committed to we should be committed to expositional preaching but we should also be committed to experiential preaching. Now, the old-timers' word for that would be experimental, okay? But that's too easily misunderstood today. If we said, um, Mickey's going to preach an experimental sermon next week, it might be like he's like maybe testing something new out, right? And that's not what the old timers meant. What they meant by experiential preaching was that you have, you have your life and you have the truth and they collide at the intersection. Okay? Experiential preaching, Joel Beakey in his book, Reformed Preaching, draws this out. He says, That experiential preaching is preaching that tests genuine Christian experience by the standard of biblical truth. It draws lines distinguishing between believers and unbelievers. 
It makes frequent and wise application of truth to life. It balances biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical elements. It cultivates a life of communion with our God and Savior. It builds experience upon the foundation of Holy Scripture. It goes beyond contemporary superficiality into the deep wisdom of the old paths. It offers food to satisfy the new experiential sense of the believer's soul. And it touches the heart with the bitterness of sin and the sweetness of grace. Experiential preaching is preaching that has the indispensable quality of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Understand this, that you, in in preaching, you're not designed simply to be informed. You are also designed to be moved to have your heart moved. And so um, I, I give our people a hard time once in a while and then I always get pushed back and I say something like this. And so I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I, and I won't look so that nobody's embarrassed. So I say something like this. I wish that you would just listen to the sermon instead of take notes. Okay, so I'm not looking. I'm not looking at anybody. And then I'll say this. If you want to take notes, it's really easy. Everything's recorded. If you want to take notes, go back and listen to it. Why, why, do, I, why do I sound like Scrooge? Because preaching that's experiential preaching is a dynamic between the preacher, the congregation, and the Holy Spirit. So, JT can testify. I tell preachers in the preaching and teaching class at Reformed Baptist Seminary, don't you dare preach looking at people's foreheads. Don't you dare preach looking at the back wall. When you preach, look people in the eye. Let them know that you're talking to them. There is something, if, if you can preach a sermon that sounds as if You could empty the whole room and it would be exactly the same. It's not experiential preaching. There's a dynamic, there's an interaction, there's a connection. And I'll tell you that in in, in much of, of evangelical preaching today, this element of experiential connection through the word, the spirit, the preacher, and the congregation is almost absent And so experiential preaching is doing what? It is actually bringing by the power of the Holy Spirit the truth into direct contact with our lives. And so we we have to have the Holy Spirit in order to preach with power. We have to have the Holy Spirit in order to preach experientially, and you go, wow, you're talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Are you like a closet charismatic? Well, let me just say something about that. The Holy Spirit is not the domain of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified who spoke by the prophets. 
We believe in the Holy Spirit. And in fact, if I did not believe in the Holy Spirit, I would never preach another sermon ever again. I would go do something else. Probably not being a sniper, but I would do something else. Why? Because the preaching experientially that has power to it is so completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can work up with the arm of the flesh. It is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone. And so we should desire above everything else as preachers to preach in the power of the Spirit. Congregations should desire nothing more that when their pastor comes to bring the Word of God, he is filled with the Spirit and preaches in the power of the Spirit. When the Spirit is at work in the preacher, there is an energizing that takes place, an enlivening, a quickening that takes place, bringing a heightened sense of God's presence, a heightened sense of understanding the weight and the gravity of truth and the powers of unseen realities. And so experiential preaching is a supernatural, redemptive event. It is the kind of preaching that when a person leaves, they're able to say, I felt like God was speaking right to me. You ever felt that? You ever felt under the ministry of the word all of a sudden like you're all, am I the only one in here? When you have that sense, God is speaking right to, to me. That's experiential preaching. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And we desperately need that. Lectures about the Amalekites will not change anybody's life. Okay. But truth on fire will. Now, there's a lot more we could say, and I have some great Edwards quotes and stuff, but let me just say this, that it's this kind of preaching, that Bible exposition, right? So it's, there's content, okay? This isn't just telling moving stories about, you know, terrible things happening to innocent people or something. Spurgeon used to say don't, to, to his students, don't, don't move your hearers with burning baby stories. Move your hearers with the truth. Okay. So, preachers can and certainly ought to work on being more engaging in their preaching, but there's also something about this kind of preaching that is strictly the domain of the Spirit. And so, in a sense, we could put it this way, when the Spirit shows up in the preaching of the Word, Experiential preaching comes home with power and changes lives. So if revival ever comes, if we live to see it, I hope we do, it will be marked by a sense of the Spirit's presence and power, taking up the word of truth, not gimmicks, and people's lives are transformed. Okay. So how do we apply this? Okay. How do we apply this? I'm going to just, this is, this is the short part. Number one, prepare to hear the word. Okay? Prepare to hear the word. Which means, one, um, 
don't come to church drowsy. Now, somebody may have a graveyard shift. You may have a mother that has a child that's screaming all night because they're teething. And there has to be charity knowing that there are certain situations where people are going to be drowsy. But, But don't come to church drowsy because you stayed up watching Netflix until one. Okay? Come to church alert. Okay? Come to church ready. George Swinnick, the old Puritan, said this, if you will leave your heart with God Saturday night, you will find it with him Sunday morning. Okay? So just prepare. So what's the most important thing that you do in the course of a week? So you go to work, you raise your kids, you do this, you do that. I want to say one of the most, I want to say the most important thing that we do in the course of the week is gather together as the people of God to worship God and to hear from God. And so if that's true, why wouldn't we prepare? And so the idea of being alert is important, but then also pray for the guy who's going to be preaching. So in our bulletin for almost 30 years now, we have a little saying. I heard it came from from, um, the, uh, the Dutch church, and it said, pray your pastor full, and he will preach you full. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the guy that's going to be preaching. If it's JT, pray twice as long. <laughs> okay? Uh, sorry, brother. Pray for the one that's going to preach. How do you pray for the one that's going to preach? You're going to pray, Lord, I ask that he stays in a good frame throughout the night. I pray that he, when he wakes up in the morning, he seeks your face. And I pray that as he comes to deliver the word for us today, that you would empower him by your spirit. I pray that you would work through him in a way that goes beyond him. I pray that, that Christ would be put on display. You can pray all kinds of marvelous things for your pastor Saturday night and Lord's Day morning. And so Spurgeon, I hope you love Spurgeon, he says, this one morning in the year we reserve to refresh the reader's memory upon the subject of prayer for her ministers. And we do most earnestly implore every Christian household to grant the fervent request of the text first uttered by the apostle and now repeat by us. Brethren, pray for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Brethren, Spurgeon talking to his people, brethren, our work is solemnly momentous, involving weal or woe to thousands. We treat with souls for God on eternal business, and our word is either a savor of life unto life or death unto death. A very heavy responsibility rests on us, and it will be no small mercy if at the last we be found clear of the blood of all men. As officers in Christ's army were the especial mark of the enmity of men and devils, they watch for our halting and labor to take us by the heels. Our sacred calling involves us in temptations from which you may be exempt above all too it draws us away from our personal enjoyment of truth into a ministerial and official consideration of it we meet with many naughty k-n-o-t-t-y many naughty cases and our wits are often at non-plus we observe very sad backslidings our hearts are often wounded we see people perishing our spirits sink and we wish to profit you by our preaching We desire to be blessed by your children. We long to be useful both to saints and sinners. Therefore, dear friends, intercede for us with God. Miserable men are we if we miss the aid of your prayers. 
But happy are we if we live in your supplications. You do not look to us but to our master for spiritual blessings. And yet how many times has he given those blessings through his ministers? Ask then again and again that we may be the earthen vessels into which the Lord may put the treasure of the gospel. We, the whole company of missionaries, ministers, pastors, and students do in the name of Jesus beseech you. Brethren, pray for us. I want, I want to encourage you tonight that if you are not in the regular habit of praying for your pastor, especially Saturday night and Sunday mornings, that you take up that as a habit by which you go to the throne of grace on their behalf praying. Now, I was told that during the preaching, there's often somebody that's praying in this room over here. Is that right? Marvelous, marvelous. But let the whole congregation lift up their voice to God and beseech the God of heaven that he would use our pastor to preach the word of God to us. And then we pray for ourselves We pray that we would be receptive. We pray for our family. We pray for our church family. And then we come with an attitude like this. Speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. Jesus actually told his disciples, if anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know the teaching. You come in with the attitude of, Lord... Teach me, rebuke me, correct me, comfort me. What, Lord, you know what I need better than I do. Lord, please help me. Have you ever prayed that before? Have you ever prayed that before? Lord, do something in me through the ministry of the word today. Do something in my family through the ministry of the word today. And so, brothers and sisters, God is always at work in and through his word. Always. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, every sermon you hear brings you either one step closer to heaven or one step closer to hell. It's either a savor of life unto life or death unto death. There's no such thing as sitting neutral under the word of God. It's going to either draw you to Christ or you will reject it and get closer condemnation that's a sobering thing do you not think that the men that God has called to be your pastors feel the weight of opening the word of God it is not something that we do lightly and so God is always at work his word, word does not return to him void okay? does not return to him void and so May that word be precious to us. May the preaching of the word be precious to us. May it be precious to our souls. May we actually be eager to receive what God has for us. May we wake up with an enthusiasm on Sunday mornings that says, Lord, rend the heavens and come down today. Send forth your word. Let it run and be glorified. Somebody asked me one time, they said, well, like, so what do you do if you wake up on a Sunday morning and don't want to go to church? Right? You ever had anybody ask you that? 
So they're asking me because they feel that way sometimes, right? And this is what I could say with a good conscience before God. In all these years, even when I've been sick, I wake up with a sense of expectation that God is a great God. And he meets with his people. And there's no place I'd rather be than in his house with his people preaching the word. And so, God's, God's blessed me in that way, okay? I've never woke up on a Sunday morning and go, oh my goodness, I've got to go to church. <laughs> Do, actually, would you want a pastor that wakes up on a Sunday morning and goes, oh, I've got to go to church. Got to be with those people. I know you want somebody that's got the joy of the Lord in their heart that can't wait to see what God's going to do. You have a part in it. Your part is to seek the Lord on his behalf and yours. And so may it Northridge Fellowship, may the word of the Lord run unhindered and be glorified accomplishing our Father's magnificent purposes in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to you tonight, we realize what a, what a solemn and sobering thing it is to stand and to open our mouths from the Word and speak. Lord, on your behalf, as ambassadors and heralds of the everlasting gospel. And Father, we pray that we would never take that responsibility lightly, but there would be a sense in which it drives us to our knees again and again, reminding us how much we need you, how much we need your spirit. And Father, we pray that as your people, we would be glad receivers of the word that you've blessed us with. Be glorified, we pray. Lord, even this coming Lord's Day, we pray that you would meet with us in our respective churches in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen.